And summertime is really often about uh, vacations, staycations, playstations. It's about sunburns and wrong turns and miles earned and all that stuff. But a lot of you traveled, right? Just nod your head if you traveled some. Travel. You uh, on the highways and byways across this great land of ours. Uh, you see uh, road signs. Now, there are signs of instruction we all know that uh, some of us uh, obey uh, or not. And there's uh, those signs of instruction and signs of in- invitation. There's uh, cities and towns across this uh, great nation of ours that lure us in. They want to tell us a little bit uh, about themselves. Small towns, big cities, all the like. I, I collected a few to uh, share with you uh, this morning. Uh, there's a Walla Walla, Washington. These are actual signs. Now, Walla Walla, Washington, a city so nice they named it twice. There's a Beeman, Iowa. You're not dreaming. You're in Beeman. There's Happy Texas. I've run out of gas in Happy Texas. The town without a frown. And there's a, for the geologist and Chamber of Commerce people, I'm sure they were in cahoots in this one, San Andreas, California. One of my favorites is a Gas, Kansas. And on the sign, you'll see, don't pass gas, stop and enjoy it. (laughs) Weed, California, you know it's true out west. We'd like to welcome you. My very favorite, Hooker, Oklahoma. It's a location, not a vocation. (laughs) I love to look at some of you, you're like, I shouldn't laugh in church. Jesus is him anyway. Uh, These are signs uh, throughout our nation. Here's one, Modesta, California. Uh, Water, wealth, contentment, and health. That's not going to make you laugh. But I I wonder, you know, I just, I feel like we're all kind of got a little bit of wonder lust. We all, uh, we are dissatisfied and we're in a place of uh, where we lack contentment and we think invariably, inevitably, we think, well, it's not here. Obviously it's not here. So it's it's there. It's, it's right out there. It's the, the next land, the next destination. And I wonder if a place, I wonder if there's a place that doesn't have a frown. I wonder if there's a place that can really promise us uh, happiness and wealth and contentment and everything. I want to ask you this morning, I want to start a brand new series for the next uh, eight weeks. And I want to ask you to, to come up with a number. Play this in your head. Don't talk to anybody, but just in your head. I want to ask you this morning if you're satisfied, okay? Uh, do this. Even the folks in the uh, balcony, scale of one to ten, okay? Are you satisfied with your job? How satisfied? One to ten. Are you uh, satisfied with your income? How satisfied? One to ten. Got a number? How satisfied are you uh, in your marriage? Don't blink. Just nobody blink. Just look right here. Right. How satisfied are you with, uh, with your home? With your car? With your pastor? Again, don't blink. Just look ahead. Last night I dreamt that you would stand up and clap and start chanting my name, but that was just a dream. How satisfied, yeah. how satisfied are you, one to ten? For real, how satisfied are you, one to ten, with the overall direction of your life? With your current circumstances and situations? How satisfied are you? Men, I, I want to talk to you for a second. I'm, I'm one of you. And um, looking at the demographic in this room, I've lived longer than most of the men in this room. And I know that there's a great level of dissatisfaction. There's seasons of life. We're going to get to seasons of life for everybody when we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time for this and a time for this and a time for that. Beautiful, not just poetry, but profound wisdom for you and I. But men, we hit a season in life. When a man gets in his 30s, he begins to look and go, man, this is not what I thought it was going to be. 
And the, what he thought he was going to accomplish, well, he hasn't. Or he's, this is the worst. He has accomplished what he wanted, and it just didn't bring in that satisfaction. And that man, I, I, let me say this. I know a lot of men in their 30s and 40s that have this low-grade anger. And you're, let me talk to you, man. You're, you're mad. You're not satisfied with your wife, with your kids, with your car. And my response to that is it's your fault. You picked her. You raised them. You bought it. But there's this anger, this lack of satisfaction. And over the next several weeks, like I said, we're going to look at this great book of Ecclesiastes. It's part of the wisdom literature. If you study Scripture, you want to get it thematically kind of in its context. Uh, in the middle of the book, if you really kind of open it up, some people think Psalms is this way, but if you flip it open, Ecclesiastes is almost right smack dab in the middle of most of our Bibles. And right there in the middle, we see this wisdom literature. The, the books of wisdom literature are Psalms and Proverbs. Everybody's familiar with that. Then you've got Job, a book about profound suffering. And then you've got Song of Solomon, right? Everybody knows what that's about. Just look to your neighbor and nudge him and wink. Do your eyebrows like that and tell him what it's about, okay? Just do that for five seconds, okay? We might as well. But we know Song of Solomon, perhaps. Or you, some of you just learned what it's about. And then there's Ecclesiastes. Well, this is a book that a man wrote, and let me tell you something. This is a guy where, I mean, he has lived it. Sometimes I meet with people, and they think, man, you're, Robert, you're a preacher, and you've, ever since you graduated college, you've been, quote-unquote, in the ministry. So you've been insulated, you've been sheltered, you've been removed from a lot of the pressures and temptations and an understanding of what a, a cutthroat, competitive world is or what the, quote-unquote, real world is about. Or you don't know what I've been to or been through. But Solomon, I'm telling you, he's been through it all in excess. He uses over and over again the phrase, under the sun under the sun. But one writer said he spent every endeavor going over the moon to just, I mean, he went, he'd live life in excess. Do you know anybody like that? I had a breakfast a couple of weeks ago with a guy who just, first thing he said when we sat down is I've got an addictive personality. He said, man, I, I like you. You're my pastor. I thought, oh no, this guy's going to be stalking me, man. He's going to be, he's going to be all over me. But this guy, he says, I, I just, I just, whatever I'm doing, I just throw myself into it with abandon. And I, I told you last week, I've told you before, I, God's given me a lot of passion. I, I get, you know, my blood makers and my tear jerkers and my grin makers, I, I got a lot of passion. What makes me happy and sad and angry, uh, people know about it, right? I mean, if you know me well, you know when I'm really happy and you know when I'm sad and know when I'm angry. And Solomon, I think, had a lot of, uh, a lot of passion, but he saw things and did things and experienced things on a level that I could never dream of. And it's safe to say for everybody in this room, 12 chapters, one man, massive level, wealth, power, and position. And this one man uses these three avenues and engages his five senses. And I, and I, I think this morning I want to submit to you, I think that Solomon is saying to us that there is a sixth sense. I've tried these five. The hearing and the smelling and the tasting and the touching and the seeing. I've, I've tried these to excessive levels. But there's got to be this sixth sense. There's got to be something more than life under the Psalms, uh, you, you learn how to get along with God. You read Proverbs to learn how to get along with man. But what about Ecclesiastes? You and I, could, we, we can find so much, I hate to say it, but so much success in life. By reading Psalms and Proverbs. But 
you read Ecclesiastes and it starts out pretty cold and it starts out pretty cruel. So much to bewilder us, to shock us. I, I think for at times in this book to even offend some of us. What is he really getting at? Ecclesiastes, he starts off, by the way, chapter 1 and verse 1, he, he talks about being the preacher. Now that uh, Hebrew word koela is really, I think, renders itself teacher probably better. And honestly, the more I've studied, especially this week, I think probably the best word could be philosopher. Because he's not just laying out ten principles here and five steps to this and whatnot. He's saying, hey, I am with you. And this is like bare-knuckled, just bare-fisted intellectual rawness. I'm going to give it to you straight. And he breaks a rule of preachers. This is why I think he's more of a philosopher because preachers are kind of trained. We, we go to school and some of us were taught to open the sermon, every message with a compelling uh, illustration with some attention grabbing thing or something like that and here the teacher the preacher the philosopher simply says I'm gonna give you my bottom line right up front some of you appreciate that don't you don't mince your words don't beat around the bush if you want to know what eternity is talk to a 11 year old girl right get an 11 year old girl to tell you what happened that day right and it's just like and then this like and this and like this and then like this and I was thinking this and like and then like and you're all, in the midst of all the likes and all this uh, my daughter's never done this. I'm talking about your kids. But, but I mean, it's like an eternity, right? And you're like, where is she going? Where's this precious little God-given child going with this story? I really need to know the bottom line. And there are times when um, you and I can really appreciate that. When someone will just stand up and say, bam. And what does he say? Chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, vanity of vanities. Everything is meaningless. You glad you came to church today? Peppy message in there, isn't it? Everything is meaningless. Do you buy into that? Yesterday, I was in, in at a hotel about to go to the country, toward Pontotoc County, to do a beautiful wedding with a young couple in our church. And I enjoyed my accommodations, enjoyed the weekend, and I got on the, the hotel elevator heading to the wedding. And the doors wouldn't open. And the lights went out, and it was hot, and my, I couldn't get coverage on my phone. And I pushed the alarm, and I heard no human voice, and I waited. And after two minutes, I was fetal in the corner crying and begging, no. <laughs> All that lasted two minutes, maybe 10, but it just felt like an eternity. And I'm telling you, everything within me, it wasn't just this bride that I wanted to to a couple that I wanted to make uh, blissfully happy, uh, sealing the deal of their covenant of marriage. Uh, it wasn't just that, man. I, I realized I wanted to get out. That claustrophobe in me just said, man, I want to see the world. Man, I'm telling you, life in that moment was worth living. Let me out. And I got out, and I didn't file a grievance or anything. I just was like, thank you, God, that I got out of this very confined space. And there's moments like that. If you've experienced anything like that lately, you know there's just something in you that bears out Ecclesiastes 3.11. God is eternity in our hearts. Man, we want to live. There's something in you that just wants to go on. You don't want it to end in an elevator. You want to go to the wedding. You want to you hit the dance floor. You want to party. And there's something meaningless. It's, it's problematic, isn't it? But here he says, he doesn't just use hyperbole. He doesn't just uh, throw something out there for shock value. He says, 
He builds a case. He spends these chapters that we're going to be looking at building a case for what he said. Now, the, the, most versions render vanity of vanities. That's a, a good word, but I don't think the most excellent of words. I think that word meaningless is actually better because our word vanity is replete with uh, different associations and images and meanings. It's just easier to say, right? Try to say meaninglessness of meaninglessness over and over, right? It just, it's phonetically awkward. So vanity of vanities is, is how it's rendered in, in many of our English translations. But here Solomon builds a case, and what does he say? The first thing he says is, go out in nature. Look at verse up. Three and four of the first chapter. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Some of you were under the sun yesterday, weren't you, at ball games? How hot was it, right? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The earth, nature, what God created. Solomon is saying, the first thing I want you to do is go outside. Now, many times, I don't know if this ever, ever happened to you, when I go outside, I get a fresh perspective. You ever been writing, on some, writing something, you had a brain freeze, or just maybe it's tense where you live, like with a roommate or spouse or something like that, and you walk outside, and it helps you, doesn't it? I mean, it's a breath of fresh air. Walk outside. Gain a, gain a new perspective. But this one's a little different. Solomon's saying is walk outside in his existential woes. In his meltdown moment, he's saying, walk outside, do what I've done. And look at the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, some of that you can do in the day, some you can do in night. I used to have a great-grandfather who would tell me, if you see the moon in the daytime, that means you're lazy. Some sage wisdom, I guess. I think his idea was, man, put your hand on the plow, don't look up, don't look for the moon. That means you're not working hard. But go outside, night or day, look at the sun, moon, and stars. Look at the rivers, look at the valleys, look at the mountains, look at the trees, look at it all. Here's what Solomon's saying, it's going to outlast you. Newsflash, that, that lawn you mowed yesterday, it's going to outlast you. That's what Solomon is saying. Go outside and look. Generations, man, they, they come and go. Doesn't everybody want to do something great? Doesn't, doesn't everybody in the room want to make an impact? You want to, as we say so many times, man, you want, to, you want to leave a legacy. You don't want to be forgotten. If we had two lines in the room and this over here was like the people who signed up to be remembered for generations, and this over here were people who wanted to be forgotten, nobody, I'm guessing, would be on this side. We, we want to be remembered. And Solomon is saying in this moment of life under the sun, he's saying, hey, we're coming and we're going, and we're just really not going to be remembered. The earth is going to outlast you. And then Solomon says, he says, don't just look at nature and learn your own transient, temporary value. But he says, hey, I experience a lot, not just through nature, but through knowledge, through, through learning, through acquiring. Look at chapter 1 and verse 12, I believe it is. Or 17, I'm sorry. We're going to look at 17 and 18 in a moment. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He means that in an extreme level. I perceive that this also is but striving or chasing after the wind. Do you know anybody that finished college and they went to graduate school and they just hadn't found what they're looking for? Not just that J-O-B, but, but meaning. And what do they do? They, they go, they get more postgraduate work. And Solomon is saying, man, more dissertations, more graduate work, more credentials, more initials before and after your name, more diplomas that you can frame on the wall. None of that matters. It doesn't matter. Now, I tried to use this 
I was a Christian right before I went to college, and I was learning the Bible. And I remember coming across this wisdom, and I tried to use it against my parents. They're like, boy, get to college, all right? Get you some discount knowledge at the college local, locally. But knowledge is good. The Bible says two things, okay? Let's understand the extremity of this. Um, it says the prophet Hosea says knowledge is power. We need to learn. Paul said to the church at Corinth, knowledge puffs up. Be careful with too much or misapplied knowledge. And Solomon is saying in the state of meaninglessness, is saying it just doesn't matter. I've worked in a university environment. I'm not as educated as many of you, but I've worked in a university environment in ministry. Years, in fact. And during that stretch, I had an opportunity to engage and to debate and to be involved in academia. And I could tell you some of the most cynical and miserable people I know, who, they're, they're the folks who think just one more published work, just one more book, just one more research finding, just one more archaeological dig, and I could find what I'm looking for. And Solomon is saying that road leads to madness. Listen to what Paul said. Some people are always learning. He said this to his young protege, Timothy. Some of us are always learning, but we're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm not critical of this. I'm just telling you where we're at. It's an age of specialization. Um, We specialize. A lot of us specialize, right? You're probably in a field up in the balcony. He's a friend of mine. He's an eye surgeon. Uh, If you have eye work that needs to be done, you want him to be very good at what he does. He's specific in that. It's a specialization. That's what uh, study and employment are about today. But back when universities were founded, uh, our Ivy League schools, the very word university meant universal knowledge, that we would learn a specific field of endeavor that could lead to gainful employment and contribution to the world. But that specific field would be understood in the light of universal truths and principles. For those Ivy League schools, looking at a lot of college students right here, for those Ivy League schools, it was a university. Let's, let's learn comprehensively and how your specific field fits in to the whole equation, yea, including the providence of God. Man, it means nothing. It is nothing. It just leads to emptiness. Whether you're a high school dropout or Harvard educated, there's just something about knowledge unless we get to the truth of it all. It's just a dead end road. And then in chapter two, we're going to turn the corner for a few moments. In chapter two, it gets good. Solomon says, okay, it gets a little more, uh, a little more peppy. Okay, the brightness, he conveys it a little bit as he, as he takes just a swan dive into the pool of hedonism. I mean, pleasure run amok. Solomon says this in chapter 2 and verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. In other words, you're not going to outlive the earth. You just got a very few days here. To cheer my body with wine. Now we're not going to ask you what you did last night. But I do want to ask. How much wine, don't act like some of you don't know, I mean, how much wine does it take? In our community, we've got recovery programs for people who have given it the old college try, right? How much wine does it take? Solomon saying, man, I've tried it. And he jumps into hedonism. Look at the verses 49. I'm just going to, I want us to have us read it as we begin this series and look at this book. It's in there. It's in scripture. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. Why vineyards? I have a lot of wine. He did it who? For for what reason? For himself. 
I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Sort of a poetic phrase after a a morally reprehensible one. So I began, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Just leave that passage up, if you will. Vineyards for his wine. He planted them, fruit trees, things were growing. He had people to serve him. Don't you want a butler? Don't you want a chauffeur? Don't you want someone to be there for you? He had multiples of people. They would, they were at his beck and call, whatever he would say. I had great possessions. Now back in the day, I want you to know, that's how people showed off their bling. To have a lot of cattle grazing on a hill. That's different for us, isn't it? Now, some of you want land. You want to get out in the country. You want something. But back then, it was a big deal. There weren't 22s, not 22-inch rims on the Cadillac Escalade. That's not how you showed your bling back then. But having herds, having a lot of cattle grazing on a hill, people would drive. Well, probably didn't drive by, but they went by, and they thought, man, look. Look at that guy. Wow, he is successful. Any of you know the Psalms that say, um, God the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You ever heard that? I, I believe it's Psalm 55. I think it is. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You see, it really means something. As Solomon is saying, man, I was kind of God. I, I had that. I had that stuff. I, I had this material wealth in excess. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in Mississippi, middle income probably. And it was One summer, I met this beautiful brunette, and I was smitten by her because she's just a beautiful lady. And from the very beginning, I thought, man, I want to see where this relationship can go. And several months later, I flew to see her on the West Coast, and I met her family, and I saw some money, and I thought, I really want to get to know her very, very well. I went up to her father's office when he wasn't home, and I wrote, write Robert Greene a big check. And I was hoping, I knew he was a conservative Republican, even out there, and I, I was hoping he believed in Reagan-esque trickle-down you know, economics, that I could see a lot of this wealth. And I, I saw this beautiful neighborhood she grew up in, and I, I saw uh, rolling hills and a, and a home on the cliffs out overlooking the Pacific and Catalina Island, and they didn't have air conditioning. They didn't need air conditioning out there. And I looked at her when we were dating before I asked her to marry me, and I said to her, Susan, I can take you away from all of this. And I have. I really, really have. It was an introduction to a beautiful woman outside and inside. And what I've learned in my 19 years of knowing her is that stuff never made her happy. In fact, a lot of that stuff that they've had, it's gone now. They're still okay. But they're selling things and liquidating and some of those businesses that her father owned. It's just hard. And I know this, uh, it it wasn't until really she got out of college that she realized she was wealthier than most people. Because in that home, there uh, there was love and there was goodness, but there was a lot of stress. There was a lot of... Uh, are we keeping up with them on the hill? Because you build one house on the cliffs and there's another house coming in on the next cliff. And just this, this, this sense of does it satisfy? And I'll tell you, the, 
the one who struggles in our home the most probably with materialism is me. I'm the one wearing skinny jeans. I'm the one that likes to shop occasionally. And not once in, in our 19 years have I had a sense that she's going after wealth or prosperity. She's seen it. She's seen it. And didn't buy happiness. And Solomon said, let me save you a lot of heartache. Let me spare you decades of distraction and frustration chasing a a rabbit trail. Let me keep you from getting to the end of yourself, the end of your life, and realize you thought it was about this when it's really, it's really not. And he says what? I became great. What does that mean? Back then, the paparazzi only followed one dude, and it was Solomon. He became famous. He had the attention of other people. How much of what you and I do is for the attention of others. If you're living there now and striving to gain attention from other people through your social media posts, through your behavior at a party, through how you engage with other people, I'm telling you, it's a needle to the vein that won't satisfy. One of my life verses is Galatians 1.10. For do I now seek the favor of men or the favor of Christ? In the gospel, the good news for me, the greatest impact it's had on my life is not trying to be a people pleaser and not living for the approval of others. Two or three of you could compliment me and one of you could insult me. And it's the insult that could hurt so much. And I'm telling you, God is freeing me from that. I don't care if you like me or not. I don't. He says this. There's this cycle. There's this really vicious cycle in life. And he says it's silly of these things that are really not going to satisfy. It's, if you're looking for an analogy, it would probably be, uh, it would be that sweaty guy on the treadmill at the gym. That guy that's working so hard, he's got his heart rate up, and he's sweating, and he's working, and he's running with vigor, and the odometer says something, and the cardio says something, but you know he hadn't gone anywhere. And I think that's what we're learning from Ecclesiastes. It's a sweaty guy on the treadmill at the gym. It's the hamster on the wheel in the cage in your kid's room just going around and around. And I've thought before one time years ago looking at a hamster in a cage on a wheel. I, I, I thought, you know, I wonder if the hamsters ever look at humans. If they ever look out at us, we see them in a vicious cycle going round and around but never really going anywhere. But do they see us? In the same way, we get up and we go to work and we come home and we have dinner and we watch TV and we go to bed and we get up and we go to work and we come home and we have dinner and we watch TV and we go to bed and are the hamsters laughing at the humans. Chapter 12, verse 13. He says this. The end of the matter. Now we got seven weeks in this. We're going to look at a lot of these ideas. But he says this. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. How are you going to die? How are you going to end? When will you finish? Only the sovereign one knows. But in all likelihood, it'll be flat on your back, statistics say, in a room with some equipment around you and possibly some cords in your body and maybe some people around you. Being in the ministry for 25 years, being a pastor for well over a decade, 
my share of time in hospitals. I've spent, I've spent time with people in their last days, their, their final hours. And not once have I ever been bedside with someone who has said, hey, go, go to my basement. Go to my basement and get, it's behind that big brown box with the red tape on it. Go get, get that bowling trophy and, and bring it here and put it right here. I, w- I want that bowling trophy, that, that trophy I won all those years ago. Good. I, I've never heard anybody say, uh, run to the bank and get a stack of cash. Just fill a, a suitcase full of cash and put it right here next to me. I've never heard anybody say, hey, would you run out and run home and get my BMW and park it right out there in that parking place there so I can look out the window and see that shiny Beamer that brought me so much happiness? Not once. Never. And you know what? I've got a crystal ball when I say this. I never will hear that. And you won't either. But people, you know what? Always two things. The final days, final hours, always, I want to be right with my family, and I want to be ready to meet my maker. In this, these next weeks, we're going to talk about how we can lean that ladder against the wrong wall. We can fall prey to the silliness of thinking that things matter when they really don't. Soren Kierkegaard, if you're into philosophy, I I certainly am. He's a brilliant man, troubled in many ways. Don't buy everything he says. But he's given us, I think, a great definition of what sin is. Building your self-worth on anything other than God. I I love this next thought. I want to leave it with you this morning. When you take a good thing, and that's what the next seven weeks are about. We're going to talk, I mean, is pleasure a bad thing? Is, Is it a bad thing? Is it inherently, intrinsically evil? We're going to look at that. When you take a good thing, and you make it an ultimate thing, you lose a sense of all things. If there was an equation, I think we could say it like this, Solomon would. Everything which he had minus God equals nothing. Or this way, God plus nothing equals everything. Sometimes I sit down with some of you as your pastor and you will tell me what you've lost. A job, a relationship, a home, your sense of self-respect, meaning. And I hate it for you because in some ways I've, I've been there. But yet I know that when things are taken away, when the scaffolding and the facade is removed, when life is really raw, when you are bare-fisted and you feel like you either don't have all the things that you want or you in that moment have nothing, it's God's opportunity to say, you need me. And I am everything. Would you pray with me? God, we want you to guide us in these weeks ahead. We're going to open up and walk through wisdom literature. Today we only introduce the idea. We're going to walk through this literature that has so much wisdom. And I pray that as it bewilders us and baffles us and shocks us and maybe even offends us, Lord, that it would do something in us. We lay hold of Hebrews 4.12 that says the Word of God is living and active. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I pray, Lord, I pray that today some of that's happened in these weeks ahead, that it would be powerful. Your Word would be powerful in our lives. Lord, this phrase 
under the sun simply means life without God. And Lord, no doubt there are regrets in this room. Doubtless there are people who can think of wasted years. I know parents who are uh, maybe afraid and hesitant to share with their growing kids about some of the dumb mistakes that they made. And Lord, when we, when we refuse to share our bumps and bruises and life's lessons, we rob a next generation. And Solomon is saying, hey, let me tell you, let me show you how to parent. Let me, let me talk to the children. Let me talk to growing humanity. Let me tell you the dumb things I've done and the rabbit trails I've chased, the endless maze, the futility exercises. Lord, there's a part of everyone in this room that wants to get out of the elevator. We, want, we don't want to be trapped. We want to go to the wedding. There's so much fun. There's so many people to love. But God, there are times when we can walk out under the moon and stars and we can see nature. We can look at a tree that's going to outlast us. And in pain and bewilderment, we wonder if our lives matter. And we have a very real enemy that's winning with many of us. Lord, let everyone fast forward to a day. A day when we will be toward the end and we'll think about only what matters, people and God. Lord, how great would it be for us to orient ourselves with more wisdom, biblical, godly wisdom, In you, in Jesus we pray.